0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Please welcome Vox Correspondents Zach Beecham, Jen Kirby, and Daryl Lynn.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of The Weeds taped live at Trucon 2022. My name is Dara Lind. I'm your host for this afternoon. I'm joined today by Vox senior correspondent Zach Beecham. That's me. <laughs> yeah, the podcast audience can't see you. Oh, Zach.
3: that's right. They can't. Yes. I'm sorry. I waved for you, audio <laughs>
0: folks. I, I waved. And Vox foreign and national security reporter Jen Kirby. Hello. See, Jen waved and said hi. Uh, so we're going to be taking advantage of this live audience at the end of this to have a Q&A, which is not going to be limited to the subject of today's episode. So just so y'all know, you should not feel the need to be restricted. We're going to be talking today about the connection between mass migration, the rise of the populist far right, and democratic backsliding, because there's something of a master narrative out there that could be problematized. And also, we want to talk a little bit about what it means to the extent that it is true for what the prospects for democracy are going forward. As we are here now, in our little conference, there's also CPAC going on in Hungary, under the generous auspices of the Viktor Orban regime, which is as good a sign as any that there is a growing self-consciousness of a transnational populist right, which when it first kind of started articulating itself in the mid-2010s was very tied to a reactionary politics against mass migration, specifically the European reaction to the Syrian refugee crisis in 2014-2015 and the fact that Orban as well as, you know, some other Eastern European right populist leaders were able to kind of ride what they projected as a backlash against that migration and a longing for, you know, return to traditional populace and to control, to power. But Zach, as like the person on this panel who has done a whole lot of thinking about the transnational far-right and specifically the connections between the U.S. and Germany... It is
3: literally my job.
0: Yeah. Um, how would you talk us through this kind of, this assumed relationship between mass migration, reaction, and and right populism and like what actually the relationship between those three things is. So
3: I want to answer your question by giving a like capsule history of the European far right, which has come to be the sort of locus of a lot of our concerns about democracy, at least democratic backsliding among advanced democracies. There are other countries that are different with different histories, but somewhat related. We're talking here, India, Brazil, Turkey, Israel. There are similarities, they're important, and we can talk about those in the Q&A, but here, I I think right now, we wanna focus on the European case, because that's the one that has the closest linkages to the migration issues Mm -hmm. that you've been concerning. Now, the European far right, as we understand it, is like, if I were to give you a one-line summary, It is the answer to the question of what the European extreme right was going to do after Nazism, because they had just lost a continent-wide devastating war that had been animated primarily by the leading European far-right ideologies of the interwar period, and so were so so thoroughly discredited across the globe, and especially in Europe, that they are like, what are we going to do now? Well, it took several decades for a bunch of people to come up with an answer to that question, and it's really the, the Front National in France- that hit upon it first. And the argument and, and the brilliance it's not a like kind brilliance. I'm not saying that like I'm impressed, right? It's a devious brilliance, but it's that you could rearticulate the politics of grievance and the politics of exclusion through the lens of immigration by portraying specifically certain kinds of immigrants, immigrants especially from former European colonies as these empires were dissolving, as threats to Europe, to European civilization, to Europe's continuity. And you can do that, all of that stuff, without ever needing to use the word race, which had become toxic. And that's where this political tendency comes from. And it has evolved in a variety of different ways, some of which have become uh, sort of domesticated is the right term, right? Able to compete inside a democratic process without becoming a threat to democracy itself, while still posing a significant threat to immigrants and descendants of immigrants. In other countries, this kind of ideology has morphed into an extinction level event for democracy. Uh, Hungary is the paradigmatic example there, which is why I'm glad you led with that, right? There, anti-immigrant far-right politics has been latched onto by a a regime that basically has, from the get-go, wanted to consolidate authoritarian control over Hungary. And there they've realized that they can pick up on what the rest of the European far right does as a legitimation tactic, because there's a real group of people who are really interested in that. But at its heart, I think the important thing to recognize about the rise of the European anti-immigrant right is it's not just immigrants are coming in and people got mad. That's part of the story. It's also the story of political entrepreneurs over the course of decades deliberately working to change the way that Europeans thought about immigration and its relationship to themselves.
4: Yeah, that's a tough act to follow, Zach. Um, (laughs) But uh, to to build on your history, and I think... Um, maybe one of the issues that we've seen in recent years is once you have this rise of the far right who have weaponized in some degree this uh, this question of immigration, it has in recent years entered into the popular discourse. And we've seen more mainstream parties sort of um, try to triangulate to sort of see that the rise of the far right and feel like they need to address the issues that they're talking about, like immigration, and so kind of shifting to the right as well. And what that tends to do is it takes these really toxic ideas that the far right populist far right has embraced and it gives them a platform and it legitimizes that discourse and embeds it into mainstream politics
0: i think that as someone who thinks a lot about the relationship between immigration policy and immigration politics it's it's important to point out that like the that none of this is about policy at all none of this is there is a particular thing that people gravitate to the far right because they want changed in migration policy that's not the same thing as saying that it like has no bearing to reality it's just that it's events triggered and frankly if we're being like pretty blunt about it immigration panics over the last decade plus in particular have tended to be triggered by images of large groups of people um and that's true in the United States context as well as in the European context and to a certain extent elsewhere as well. And that provides a relevance hook, a news hook, so that it isn't seen, you know, it's not only not seen as a race issue, but it's not even seen as a culture war issue, right? It's a legitimate problem that is being presented in the news as a problem that people can then legitimately react to. But it's also serving as the locus for a lot of other grievances rather than as a policy agenda. Um, when we, when I was reading up for this, something that um, a, a phrase that really stuck out for me is that migrants are globalization made visible, that you know, while obviously around 2016 in the election of Donald Trump, there was a lot of discussion about like oh, is the Trumpist right animated more by anti-globalization sentiment, by, by isolationist foreign policy sentiment, or by nativist sentiment, and whatever the answer to those questions is it finds a locus in anti-immigrant politics because that that is a visible body that people can react to and that's not necessarily to say that it is an inevitable thing that when people you know are confronted with people who are different from them they are naturally going to gravitate to the far right, right? we actually do have some empirical evidence in like both directions about that but it is a way to articulate the relationship between the political entrepreneurship the th- facts happening on the ground and the like legitimate growth in popularity of many far right parties as you know as we've kind of come through a migration crisis
3: yeah i'm i'm glad you brought up the relationship between like the actual experience of seeing immigrants around you and how that translates into far right politics and I'm glad that you brought up empirical research because this is the weeds and we love white papers on the weeds. Love and so we're, we're, we're gonna talk about some statistical studies now. I'm very excited. And I hope you all in the audience are too, because there, there, there are two studies that I, I'd read in the past but really stuck out in thinking about this. They're both like brilliant in a really wonky sense, experimental design, right? One of them, they looked at islands in Greece that had received refugees during the refugee crisis in 2015. So for example, uh, there's one island, Lesbos or Lesbos, you may know, was the locus of the refugee crisis in 2015 in Greece, which is one of the biggest receiving countries coming in from Turkey. Uh, There's an island just a few miles away that's a little bit further away, just far enough away that they didn't, the way that the boats traveled, it just didn't make sense for them to get a bunch of refugees. And it turns out this is a repeating pattern. Greece has a lot of islands. Some of them were geographically more likely to get refugees than other, but very demographically similar. So like, political scientists love stuff like this, because then you can do a really neat comparison and basically figure out causality, what the effect was of immigrant arrival on vote shares. And surprise, I mean, no surprise given what you just heard Dara say, where there were huge amounts of immigrants that created like a real problem of how you deal with these people coming in, then the far-right share, not just far-right in this context, Greece's far-right party is called Golden Dawn and was a neo-Nazi party, right? Really the most extreme, one of the most extreme of the European far-right parties. And their vote share surged in the areas that had lots of refugee arrivals. And it didn't in the places that didn't, right? But there's another complicating factor here, which is that it's, it's not just the parties and it's not just how many immigrants there were, it's who is seeing the immigrants. So here I'm referencing a study out of Denmark, right? And what this study showed is that the reaction to immigrants and the relationship between immigration and the far right vote share was really different based on where the immigrants decided to settle. So when you had a lot of immigrants in the countryside, which they define as any place that is less than 95th percentile of population density, so basically anywhere but the biggest cities, if a bunch of immigrants came to a community that fit in that description, you ended up getting a fairly significant shift towards the far right, an immigration backlash. In the cities... It was the opposite. You actually saw a decrease in support for far-right parties when people got to hang out with, meet, integrate with immigrants. Now, there are plenty of explanations for that, but the one that makes the most sense, at least based on some other political science research we have, is that sort of that the people who live in cities have a different set of values and a different set of beliefs, and immediate exposure to immigrants triggers these more welcoming, cosmopolitan, open-minded beliefs. And the people who chose not to move to cities, who choose to live in more isolated, rural, traditional communities tend to have a more negative view of change. And so in that sense, it isn't, again, just a natural reaction. There are policy questions at work here and communities that respond in different ways based on how the people there think about immigrants, where the immigrants are placed, how well the governments respond to mass migration and huge influxes of immigrants. This is all a very, very complicated story, but there's no doubt that immigration itself has been fueling the rise of the far right.
4: And I think what makes it so complicated is that, you know, we're talking about immigrants, but these are people who, like many of us, have, you know, come to seek more opportunity, whether it's economic or fleeing from crises, uh, whether it's from Ukraine or from Afghanistan. And so, you know, as democracies, one of our, like, founding values that we are embracing is to be welcoming and to respect human rights. And so, we're supposed to be able to find a place in our politics and in our societies for these arrivals. And so, I think... Zach Given all of the this interesting and important data that shows that there is this real backlash is how do we reconcile this sort of the values base that we say as democracies we have, and how do we make the positive case for immigration or at least adjusting our societies for these changes in the face of this clear, what but seems like a lot of evidence that it is driving this far right backlash.
3: Yeah, I, w- I want to pose a question to the audience here. It's a little, little participation element. Um, so if you are yourself an immigrant or you have immediate family members who are immigrants just so raise your hand. Okay this is a pretty hefty proportion of the audience.
0: I mean it, there's probably some self-selection here.
3: Yeah, probably true going into foreign <laughs> policy. but it's also the case that the United States has a, a much more robust and long-term tradition of immigrant welcoming than Europe does or at least the in its modern incarnation, the American state and official state ideology is built around the kind of ideas Jen that you were just talking about. Right? And that's just not the case in a lot of European countries. And so part of the reason that the far-right has managed to be so effective in so many different guises across Europe in, in using immigration to their advantages is a kind of protean ability to tailor their anti-immigrant message to the, the, the local community. So in the Netherlands, for instance, there was a guy named Pim Fortuyn. He was actually assassinated um, quite a bit ago, but he was one of the big early far-right entrepreneurs. And his argument, he was, he was gay, right? And his argument was immigrants are threats to people like me. Muslims don't share our values. They hate women, they hate gays, they hate the freedoms that we cherish in the Netherlands, and they just can't be integrated into our country. That kind of argument, doesn't work in a more conservative country like Hungary, right? where actually there's there's substantial public opposition to these same kinds of liberal values that are so popular in, the, in Hungary. So there, the argument is that immigrants are a threat to a Christian Europe, that we have a specific and important civilizational heritage, and that is what we need to preserve by keeping these people out. What these ideas share in common is a rejection of, of the belief in the value structure that Jen was just describing. Right, the idea that it's really important to welcome in people who are different, and that we can't treat people as subhuman or non-human or otherwise of lacking of basic rights because of their national origin. Right, An idea that, that, at least for a while, was a mainstream consensus in the United States. Uh, in Europe, it basically never has been. And part of the challenge is dealing with the reality of immigration in societies that have a much more particularistic, Be it in more liberal or more conservative or in some other kind of ideological guise, right? More particularistic sense of self.
0: I want to come back to the history and the genealogy of the post-World War II order that you started with, Zach, because that's also true of the system of international agreements that obligates nations to accept refugees. And that was like not a coincidence, right? One of the One of the kind of collective action failures that in 1945, the international order saw in retrospect going into World War II was, wow, we really didn't have a framework for people who were, you know, existentially threatened by fascist regimes. And as a matter of fact, you know, like we probably could have saved a whole lot of people that didn't get saved. And so what's ironic is that until the Syrian refugee crisis of 2015, that kind of obligation to accept people who have come to your country even by traveling through a bunch of different countries and say this is where I feel safe I'm going to seek asylum here had like Europe had been a little bit insulated from it um, because you know the Mediterranean is a dangerous enough crossing that you really did need large large numbers of people in order to have any kind of meaningful arrivals and you know it's when when it's a low enough volume that it's just mostly people dying in the water, you don't necessarily have to pay a ton of attention. If you're you know a fairly insular, <laughs> like homogeneous society, what's interesting to me, I think, is especially now that we're in the midst of a different mass migration event, which is the the Ukrainian exodus. On the one hand, that is very much hearkening back to the like oh war in Europe. This is something we haven't seen since World War II. Yada yada. You know that that lay narrative. On the other hand the actual refugee conventions as they got signed didn't create the same rights for people fleeing war as they did for people fleeing persecution in terms of the ability to, you know, actually settle in other countries because a war is seen as a temporary disruption. Whereas if you're being persecuted because of your identity, that's, you know, seen as something where you can permanently resettle and make a new life. So what do we think about the way that the Ukrainian example is like how that is playing out and
4: what that tells us about the effects of migration in European politics. I think it's been pretty clear in the way that Ukrainians have been welcomed, even compared to, you know, Afghanistan, where, you know, NATO countries were deeply involved in that conflict. There was some reporting out of Germany even in April that they had evicted some Afghan refugees uh, in housing to put Ukrainian arrivals in. And there's no sort of One conflict is worse or better than the other. You know, the Ukrainians are dealing with unspeakable circumstances. But I think we have to recognize, too, that in Europe there is a political angle to the way that, you know, the Ukrainian refugees, everyone is opposed to Russia, welcoming them, showing them with open arms is um, a way to sort of signal our values and, and make that very clear. And and Putin knows this very clearly. I mean, we've seen just even a few months before the Ukrainian refugee crisis, we had um, the Belarusian president, Lukashenko, uh, sending migrants or, or attempting to send migrants across the border um, with Poland, and they were being met with tear gas. And Lukashenko was doing this because the European Union had sanctioned him and his goal was to say, oh, you who you embrace human rights? Well, look at you here. And he was trying to create that image of showing European hypocrisy when the refugees come from uh, Middle East or Africa. And I think this goes back a little bit to what I was saying before in Europe and sort of dealing with these issues of how it, as liberal democratic societies do we want to uphold these values that we've kind of embraced in this post-World War II order but also try to reckon with these fears of this right-wing backlash at home, which is that rather than sort of making the positive case for um, accepting refugees or immigration, you see ways to sort of get around it. So, you know, in Europe's case in the Belarusian instance, it was, well, you know, Lukashenko is weaponizing migration, so it, it doesn't sort of count, and it absolves them of the responsibility of actually dealing with the questions and making the affirmative case in many ways for immigration.
0: That's, I think, a useful way to to kind of think about the ways in which immigrants are and aren't granted agency, for sure. And the other point I would I would make is that, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see if the um, response on Ukrainian refugees continues to be as welcoming as the exodus continues. A migration researcher I know said early in this crisis, if you if you have to be a refugee, make sure you're in the first wave, because that's where the people are going to be bringing the teddy bears to the airport that's or, or to the train to the train station. Yeah, but it's it's not wrong right because obviously the goodwill is going like to the extent that goodwill is a non-renewable resource and is based on people feeling that they themselves have a surplus of resources to give we're going to take a break and then we're going to start folding democracy into this conversation because so far we've been talking about politics but not really about democracy much less what that means for the rest of us
5: dot wcom slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds.
0: Welcome back to The Weeds at TruCon 2022. So I, I wanted to actually kick this over to Jen, because you were doing some reporting around, uh, like in, in Germany, that is super relevant to this, right? And, you know, Zach, at the beginning of all this, mentioned far-right parties getting domesticated, which I think was an interesting way to put it. The AFD is part of this wave of, you know, far, far-right far populist parties. What did you see in terms of where they are now in the political landscape?
4: Well, I mean, they're as radical as they've ever been. And even in 2021, um, their party platform was extraordinarily radical in terms of the anti-immigrant sentiment. But I think Germany is an interesting case to kind of like step back a little bit because as we all know during um, the wave of refugees who came from Syria and other parts of the region in that 2015 period, um, Germany was the leader. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel said i not going to attempt it in German, but like, basically we can manage this. Like, we is can you're do it
3: good enough to even try to attempt it. Cause if it is, le- I
4: am learning, so okay. awesome. <laughs> But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass myself right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but, but she said we can manage it. That was a very, like, we, we can do it. We can accept, you know, a million plus people. And there was a huge reaction to that. You saw the AFD uh, rise massively in the polls and gain a lot of uh, support. People thought Merkel's career was done within her own coalition. There were fracturing in terms of um, people farther on the right who were challenging her on immigration and how she was handling it. And then you saw, you know, in this last election, the AFD again, their platform was hugely radical, but when it came to their rhetoric and how they were trying to interact with voters, they seized on things like vaccine mandates and other sort of social issues and tried to make more centrist rhetoric. And during that election in 2021, although Angela Merkel's party left, she left as still extraordinarily popular politician. Her approval numbers rebounded drastically. And the AFD did a little bit worse in federal elections than it had in the previous elections. And I think it sort of shows Um, you know, this kind of cap and limitation, but also this recognition that, and Germany, of course, is a very specific case with a very specific history, so its politics are are very different. Unlike in other parts of Europe, the German parties will not work in any way with the AFD. They won't form coalitions, they won't vote with them, which also keeps them isolated. But I think there's a recognition, perhaps, from some of these far-right parties that being so openly anti-immigrant may have its limits. And you've seen this even in France, the recent elections with Marine Le Pen, who Zach, as you said, was kind of the one who helped start this, you know, focused on the economic populism issue as opposed to the anti-immigrant rhetoric. Of course, economic populism is embedded with some of that in terms of, you know, we'll take care of our own type thing, but there might be a recognition perhaps that being so open about this does have its limits electorally, especially if you, you want to survive as a party.
3: That's the interesting thing about parties like this, right, is that they actually do have to work within the confines of the democratic political system right up until they don't. Right. And and you don't know oftentimes in advance which one of them is going to be a problem and which one of them isn't. The Hungarian case, I think, is, is really useful here as another point of comparison, right? Because Fidesz, the current ruling party that Urban controls, got its start as an uh, anti-communist liberal party in the 1980s and 1990s. It was a youth party basically calling for democracy, liberalism. That changed in the 90s. Orban did this very strategically. He saw that there wasn't a conservative party in Hungary that was capable of capturing people who had some concerns about the direction of the country during liberalization. He shifted the party's direction. He said some stuff in when he was out of power that was sort of ominous, but nobody thought, no one in Europe, I mean, this is the, the clear impression I've gotten from traveling around there and talking to people about this, no one thought that he would destroy democracy after being elected. They thought, and he was elected as a result of, one, the Great Recession, and two, the uh, corruption, embarrassment, variety of different scandals engulfing the current socialist government. And the reason that this is worth harping on is because basically within two years, he had completely transformed the structure of Hungarian government and the constitutional structure of the state to one where it was increasingly difficult for the opposition to win. And by the next election, his party was capable of winning two-thirds of seats with less than a majority of votes, right? Because they had just so radically transformed the electoral system itself, let alone what they had done to media and other institutions of a free society. Now, does every far-right party have these kinds of radical anti-democratic positions? I don't know. And I'm not sure you can know in advance, right, because they're not going to say, we're going to destroy democracy, vote for us. That's not like a winning slogan. You pretend to be a Democrat. You act like a Democrat. You you change to different issues, right, as you saw in just France and Germany recently. But you generally play by the rules. And then you get enough power and you break them. How intrinsic is this to the far-right model? I know I'm repeating myself, but I I just don't know. They haven't taken unilateral power in enough countries, to be able to say right fetus was perceived as a center-right party until it wasn't. So there's just lots of ways for these things to change and that make it very, very difficult for quantifying and assessing the nature of the threat to democracy rather than just liberal norms, which are important, no doubt, uh, on the European continent.
0: So you've basically told a story of the rise of Orban that, like, for some chronological reasons but also I think a little bit deliberately like doesn't say anything about migration or other populist concerns Correct. right it is by no means obvious and not just about, like which right wing parties are going to be anti-democratic but w- what the relationship would be between a right wing populism in particular and anti-democratic sentiment because in theory populism is democratic in spirit if not always you know in support of the actual kind of boring procedural standards of liberal democracy. You know, I know we've really been focusing on Europe, but I'm wondering if your recent reporting on the Philippines, Zach, gives us a kind of model of how these two things can go together. Because obviously migration is not necessarily an issue there, but the idea of a cultural populism that inspires people to prefer something that is undemocratic to something that is democratic it seems like something we could think with.
3: Yeah, the the Philippine case is really interesting and actually fits very nicely with something Dara that you said earlier about images on the television. The Philippines, if you're not aware, recently had a, an election and they elected the son of the former dictator who imposed martial law in the country and the vice president is the daughter of the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, who is um, what is the nice way to put this? <laughs> Impolitic. Um, and uh, a human rights abuser. Okay, I'm not going to be that nice. He, his signature policy has been uh, what he called a war on drugs, which basically amounts to extrajudicial executions of anyone who is perceived to be a drug dealer. And depends on the estimate, but somewhere between six and 30,000 people have been killed. As a part of this, like, it's a truly staggering campaign of state-sponsored and state-endorsed mass murder. It's also popular, right? Some voters have expressed some concerns about it. But in general, if you look at, like, a, like a line chart of Duterte's approval when it comes to the drug war for the past— Uh, you know, six years of his time in power, it's basically a straight line, and that line's around 85, 75 percent, right? It's truly wild. Why is this so popular? Now, a bunch of scholars who work on East Asian politics have worked on this, and the language that they use is something like uh, voting against disorder or disciplinary democracy. By this, they mean this idea that voters find democratic political life messy. And so when somebody comes and says, I'm going to break all the rules, and I'm just going to fix the thing you don't like, in the Philippine case, it's crime, uh, they're like, that's fine by us. We are tired of these compromises. We're tired of these rules that are tying the police's hand and tying the president's hand, and somebody should just go through and smack all of them. And that is the nature, I think, of the connection to, some, to, to Orban in particular and the particular kind of illiberal and authoritarian politics is like he gets things done. When you talk to right wing admirers of Orban in the United States, they say the same thing. He's, he's a lot like Trump but he at least accomplishes things, right? Like he fights and he wins. Maybe you have to break some liberal norms to do that, but at least we're scoring our cultural victories. So that's the thing. It's about a sense that society is disordered and that somebody through this kind of authoritarian populist appeal and illiberal policies can set it right, whether the source of disorder is drug dealers or immigrants.
4: Yeah, and I think to that that point, it's sort of this thing that you were saying earlier which is that a lot of these far-right parties don't necessarily have you know a plan for governance right they they latch onto an issue and that is the thing that they take and one of the challenges there's no way to sort of test how their proposition can fail because voting them into power could potentially threaten the entire democratic project and so there is this constant tension where they actually don't even have the ability to face the democratic public and be accountable to it because the goal is to kind of keep them on the outskirts. And I think this tension is part of the reason or or maybe contributes to the reason why these parties are so hard to kind of tamp down altogether. Jen,
3: something you said earlier about Germany is sticking in my head, that they're one of the few countries that's still been able to maintain like a really hardline norm yes. against coalition government or cooperation with their far-right party that's not the case across Europe obviously and in, in the German case right you, you alluded to this but like it's worth spelling out right it has a lot to do with the specific history of Germany right and it being well Nazi Germany but the the, the way the countries approach this over time over a really long time span has this really significant effect. Right, and it doesn't have to be a country as historically distinct as Germany in terms of its relationship with the far right. My favorite example here is Canada, which is a country that, due to the nature of my marriage, has near and dear to my heart. And uh, Canada has this—you know—they had a very long history, like the United States, of like an extremely racist immigration policy. They called it the White Canada policy, uh, and it meant what it said. And they changed that, and in fact, today are, are by most metrics maybe the world's most welcoming country to immigrants. Coincidentally, not coincidentally, they have basically no far right party. What happened? It's a complex story. There's a lot going on there, but my, the best theory that I've seen from academics who study Canadian immigration policy is that it has a lot to do with the emergence of multiculturalism as like the, the country's dominant ideology, right? Canada, for reasons relating in part due to separatist tensions in Quebec and the nature of having to manage a country that has a significant divide between English and French speakers, adopted multiculturalism as official state ideology. This idea that we should be a country that is home to different kinds of people. Uh, the, The metaphor they use is not a melting pot like the United States, but a salad bowl. And this idea of a country whose entire identity is about being opening, welcome and liberal is something that Canadian governments have pushed through education, through state PR, through all sorts of different mechanisms to try to create and form and cement Canadian identity. And, it's been remarkably successful to the point where Canada is one of the only countries in the world, maybe the only one, where people who tend to describe themselves as more patriotic on polls also say they are more welcoming of immigrants and more open to difference. That just, that just doesn't happen in the United States and Europe. Right? The people who are more self-identified as patriotic are the people who don't want change and they don't like immigrants. But that's just it's really striking how effective this education campaign and this this really a kind of nation building campaign in Canada has been.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I would point out in terms of the Canadian example is on this theme of liberal democracy as a cause of disorder and like and and you know the compromises that you have to make in order to live within liberal democratic institutions the way canada has set up its immigration policy and like this is going back to a very old uh, live weeds taping from like three, four years ago, Uh, five years ago, five years ago, my hair was blue. Um, This is
3: for weeds completists. Sorry. Yeah, it's like absolutely
0: way back in the archives. We actually did an entire episode on Canada's immigration policy. And the, one of the big takeaways there is that there's so much flexibility in the executive branch to decide how many immigrants to take and of what kind that it, you know, it just, it makes it extremely easy to be responsive to global events. And it also means that you don't have the experience of, wow, we could be doing what it, what's needed right now, but our stupid system is getting in the way. You know, it means that mm-hmm. you actually have, like, Justin Trudeau can just up and say today, we're going to take, you know, a gajillion refugees. And it's like, oh, okay, we have a government that is robust and fast and able to solve the problem, which is usually the appeal of the authoritarian populists. But, like, if we can't, you know, go back in a time machine 50 years and just seed, like, every democratic country with the kind of multicultural, you know, secret sauce that you just identified in Canada. Like, how can democratic parties respond to the rise of a populist politics that is explicitly anti-disorder and therefore has sympathies with authoritarianism? And that, as you were saying earlier, Zach, you can't really tell whether... You know, like it's an egg and when it hatches, you can't tell if it's going to be anti-democratic and actually like claw the country back from democracy or whether it's going to survive within democracy
3: like the AFD has. I don't know if I have like the answer to that question, right? Like if I did, I would be- None
4: of us would be here. Yeah, I would be be, like
3: trying to go consult for some political parties (laughs) and telling them how you can stave off the far right (laughs) surge, right? But what I will say is there's like a thing not to do. Uh, which is a little counterintuitive. Yeah. Uh, and the thing that you shouldn't do is try to act like the far-right parties. There's a political scientist. He's at Oxford. His name is Tariq Abu Chadi. And this is what he studies, is how mainstream parties change in response to the far-right challenge and how it helps them. And he focuses on Western Europe. right? And so he has this new paper that came out in March this year. And the question is, like, if you are a mainstream left or right party, what happens when you start adopting more restrictionist immigration views in response to a far right success, which he's, he finds tends to happen, right? Is, is more likely than not. Actually, these parties do worse when they take when they start sounding like the far right at immigration. Now wouldn't you think, hey, we're just neutralizing the issue, we're making it so that they can't outcompete us on immigration and so we can talk about other issues. That's not the way the logic works. What actually happens is that you normalize and you mainstream far right language. And so it ends up being the case that a bunch of voters who may otherwise have been like, oh, we can't call immigrants rapists and criminals and thieves. That's bad. That's a lot like what the, not the way Nazis talked about people. And then you, you start hearing, you know, social Democrats and Christian Democrats say, well, immigrants, they're horrible. They're a threat to Christian Europe. They're rapists and thieves. Then they start to think, well, OK, maybe I can vote for parties that talk like that. And there's only one party that is like the authentic Real version of it, and that's the far right party. So that logic, which I didn't know, like before I had started reading Abu Chadi's work in particular, like I was kind of agnostic as to whether that work that would work that way. You know, you can neutralize the issue in the way that certain American commentators suggest the Democratic Party should or it's the other legitimating way. But I find his empirical work really convincing that at least in Europe, it's the legitimating thing. So really, really do not just like, try to be radical right light that's not going to help anybody
4: this was true I think in the the election in France when I was uh, talking to to folks there you know there's been a, an utter collapse of the center mainstream parties and a lot of that a, a big part of that is because of macron himself but you saw you know the center-right party there try to sort of adopt some of marine le Pen's talking points from the national rally and somebody said to me is like if I'm Believe that stuff. Why am I going to vote for like the diet party or like the light party? Why don't I just vote for the real and authentic thing? And I think that it's scary to think that, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it shows some of the the fallacies in these past years. My sense has always sort of been that European parties, European political leaders on both the center left and the center right understand the threat of the far right. And so they want to kind of like if we can just peel back some of their voters, then we'll veer back to the center once the threat is gone. And by doing that, again, they legitimize and give a space in the public discourse for things that weren't there before. And Dar, I'm really interested to hear from you because of your reporting on what this all says about the United States, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think in the United States, it
0: is we do not or haven't for a while had a situation in which the Democratic Party is trying to outflank the Republican Party on this issue. Right. So it's it's less of less that. It's more that the past two Democratic administrations have each thought that they can prevent it from being a political issue by neutralizing the event space. And sometimes that's by pointing out we're doing X, Y and Z in terms of policy as Obama did during his first term when he was like doing a lot of deportations and making sure that, you know, and doing so explicitly with the aim of trying to persuade Republicans that Democrats were a credible bargaining partner on immigration. And sometimes it's as with the Vice President and now President Joe Biden with Central American countries, it's an effort to genuinely just stop flows from starting by focusing on root causes, by maintaining offshoring policies like Title 42 and Remain in Mexico that, you know, physically push migrants back um, and kind of force them to remain in limbo. Um, but the thing about events is that they're not really fully in your control. And like, I'm already seeing headlines about like Biden's root causes policy isn't working. It's, like, root causes, definitionally, means you can't expect it to pay off in the scope of a single presidential term. But that's also how you've, if you've defined that as your solution to an immediate problem, then it makes sense that people are going to start expecting results. And like, there are so many other things. You can't control whether Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Like you can't or like certainly if you're Poland, you can't control if Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Right. If you're the United States, you can't, you know, if you could solve violence in El Salvador and you haven't yet, then like my dudes. So, it, you know, there is there's this idea that the US in particular, because it's so powerful, should be able to control the political space that leads people to start getting worried about immigrants. And I think that we've pretty clearly established at this point that that's not necessarily the case, that there was was an open border panic like in the first quarter of last year when apprehensions and expulsions were so much less high than they are now because it's not really a policy objection it's not really something that you can pose a policy solution to and the other thing I would point out here and like this is where we come back a little bit to the to the authoritarianism side of it is it's not just this kind of abstract Overton window like oh if you move them within the Overton window space then you've given people permission to vote for them it's that If you've accepted that this is a civilizational threat and you're trying to fix it with liberal democratic tools, like if you're trying to to prevent migration across the U.S.-Mexico border, if that is your goal, then, yeah, it makes sense that you're going to see high numbers of people getting apprehended and expelled as a failure because the point is to keep them from crossing. But once you've said that people getting apprehended and expelled is a failure because they shouldn't be able to cross, then where are you drawing the line before people are just masked, on, before border patrol agents are just masked on the southern border with like guns, right? You've already seeded that that there is, that the problem is the violation of space and the line from that to invasion, to existential threat is much more direct than it than it would be if you said, look, the point of this is that we're apprehending as many people as possible because we need to know who's coming across and if they don't have a legitimate claim, we'll send them back.
3: I was reading a new book on the history of the right by Matt Continetti, who is himself a somewhat prominent member of the right. So it's like a sort of introspective thing. And um, one thing that he says when he's writing about the rise of Trump is that one of uh, Stephen Miller's core insight and the thing that like animates him is that he sees immigration as a master issue, right? And it's a master issue in Miller's mind. And actually like under no circumstances you got to hand it to him, et cetera. But like, I, I actually think he's he's like kind of right about this: is that immigration is is the master narrative because it speaks to core questions about identity and belonging, and those questions are also at the heart of democracy. And this is, I think, what what Dara was trying to get at. Oh here. no,
0: I mean that's also like the thesis of my career. So yes, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, keep yeah, talking no. about Good. how important my beat is, please. Oh yes, I would I would <laughs> like to talk about how important
3: your work is and how everybody should read it. But uh, you know, it's it's that when you give the state the power to define who's in the political community and who's out of it, you're also talking about inherently the rules of what the political community is and who counts and who should get to count and why. And when you start to say that certain people by virtue of who they are, their national origin, their skin tone, their religious beliefs, whatever it is, right, that they can't exist inside your society, you're not just saying we should have the power to keep them out. You're also saying that we should have the power to determine who belongs in and out, literally in terms of physical borders, but also in terms of who should be represented in the political order and who should have voice in determining the decisions of our society. That's the, the, the power, the element of judgment on a like political theoretical level, right? Like we're, we're much more at the high abstract philosophical lens than the pragmatic politics lens, but those things do relate to each other. Right and, and and claiming that kind of power, I think it doesn't like necessarily mean that you're going to try to undermine democracy, but it coexists very comfortably with a worldview that says we alone can fix it and we alone are the ones who, who are the legitimate wielders of power and controllers of it.
0: When we planned this episode, we weren't planning to get to Great Replacement Theory, but you just took us there. I did, didn't I? Yeah, because the whole thing about, like, the converse of this narrative you've just laid out is the idea that the opposition is taking advantage of our open liberal democratic process to stack the decks on electoral power. Right. And therefore, not only do we need to oppose them because they want to change our culture, but we can't trust the electoral institutions because the electoral institutions are the result of this deck stacking.
4: Zach,
3: this is your... Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to let you talk, Jen. <laughs> no. I've been writing a lot about replacement theory um, in the fun part of my career, which is like half normal mainstream extremism of the far right and like half incels and neo-Nazis. And so like now we're talking about the incel and neo-Nazi half merging with the like normal far right half. I can't believe I said normal far right. Like this is what the world is coming to. Um, yeah, like re- replacement theory moved, like had this shift from the outskirts to the mainstream at least in in the united states right basically because tucker carlson is on tv and he's watching what turns up his ratings and he notices that like when he turns the racism dial up it like really does well for him in terms of ratings and he wants to watch a show i'm not just making this up by the way this is all in a, like a very lengthy new york times piece where they had a lot of sources from inside Fox News as to how these ideas disseminated and became a major part of his show, which in turn is what brought it into mainstream Republican rhetoric, the idea that immigration is not just bad in the way that Trump said it, but actively a Democratic plot to replace us. This idea has... Multiple people have multiple traced multiple different origins, right? The idea that white people are being replaced... Uh, you know, in, in global politics, you can see it back in the 1920s in the United States with folks like Lothrop Stoddard, it's parodied very famously in The Great Gatsby. But like in its more modern form, there's a French philosopher and writer that's associated with it. But it's been very common on, on the European far right for quite some time, right? And in Hungary now, it's it's probably the only country in the world where it's governing ideology, right? Where the government explicitly over and over and over again says that immigrants are coming and people are, are sneakily, some people, right? Like you can you can like see the brackets when he says George Soros, that's the Hungarian pronunciation, right? Like that those people are masterminding immigration. That is functionally the, the central view of the government which shifted to anti-immigrant demagoguery as its central raison d'etre during, basically during and right before the refugee crisis in 2015. And there, it, it really has underpinned a lot of the anti-demo-c- anti-democratic moves. One example I'll give, right, is that they went after Central European University, which was a very well-regarded university based in Budapest, um, founded by Soros. And they went after it because it was allegedly an instrument of Soros's power in Hungary. I mean, really, it was just a normal, liberal arts university with a heavy focus on the social sciences. So a bastion of liberal values in the broad sense, but not like secretly beaming in Soros propaganda about how Viktor Orban is evil all the time. So the reason to shutter it is because it's a normal liberal democratic university, right? Like they don't want anything that challenges their ideological hegemony, anything that trains Hungarians to think differently from what the state narrative is. But the anti-immigrant part of it, this idea of defining certain people and institutions associated with them outside of the acceptable political community, that is what justified the crackdown on democracy. And in that sense, replacement theory and this positioning of immigration as a plot done by elites, I mean, we see the effects of that of democracy. You can see it very tangibly in Hungary.
0: So um, with that, we are going to take another break. And I believe if you are in the room, then you get to participate in the Q&A. Sorry, to the podcast audience, you guys just get to listen. I believe we're going to have mics coming around. So we'll take a second for those folks to get set up and then we will start with Q&A.
6: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is
0: Welcome back to our special episode taped live at TruCon 2022. We're about to jump into the Q&A portion of the episode. Apologies to our beloved podcast listeners. Obviously, we could not take your questions during this time. Uh, but now is a great time to remind you that we have an email address. It's weeds at vox.com. And we also have a Facebook group. And you can feel free to direct any queries there. And with that, let's get back to TrueCon TruCon 2022.
2: My name is Aaron Brennan, and I'm the co-director for the San Diego chapter of the uh, Truman Project. Um, so we're a border city. Yeah, you are. We, we deal with, uh, with uh, quite a bit of immigration. Um, but Dara, you mentioned, and then uh, you brought it up as well, uh, the imagery of the large crowd of people. And My father, who's um, rather conservative, calls me once a week and asks me, am I Okay. And uh, I'm like, from what? Well, the hordes of immigrants coming across the border. And um, it's pretty unsettling and partially he's just old and been poisoned by Fox News and, and partially it's cognitive decline. But my, my question is, um, that media outlet is pushing that narrative over and over and over again to the point where my dad believes that I'm in danger from people coming across the border I'm like, no, I can see the border, we're good. Um, But, uh, and I hate to use the media as as a sort of scapegoat, but like, what's the counter-narrative? How do we communicate that, no, actually a third of the workforce in San Diego are immigrants and a valuable part of the American fabric?
0: I mean... Even above and beyond what Zach said earlier about like if we had solutions we would not be here, like I in particular don't tend to be a, a solutions person because I take my journalistic ethics pretty seriously and I'm not going to be an advocate in the space, but you know what you've identified is super real and it's like it's been true of San Diego in particular for literally 30 years, right? Um, During his first stint as Attorney General of the U.S., Bill Barr went to San Diego to say people are pouring in and therefore we need to start building a border fence. Um, And it is during times when there actually are rising apprehensions, not just. Fox News. Um, there was a lot of criticism of the like mainstream media coverage of the 2018 migrant caravan, and I had some frustrations with that criticism because, like, if you read the articles, the articles were actually really good at contextualizing this shift from where and how people come to the United States, um, and you know, just doing very good contextual reporting and journalism, but people weren't necessarily reading the articles, What they saw is this big above the fold image of a large group of people, presumably coming toward the United States. And like, that's a psychological thing. Like you can't really fix, you can't fix that with text. Um, And you can't really in any kind of good conscience say, well, we should shame publications that use striking images. Like that's not really going to help people be more informed. Um, What does distinguish the kind of conservative media ecosystem is that it isn't necessarily reliant on the actual, like, facts on the ground. Like, there was a whole wave last fall about, like, secret government flights transporting unauthorized immigrant kids into the United States, which, like, was a non-story, but also was not—there was no actual numbers change that was— you know, and that was creating that. It was just like, here is a way we can keep talking about immigration. And I don't know, you know, you kind of can't know actually your way out of that because you can't say this thing that you're seeing that strikes you as a, as a significant threat isn't a threat at all. Like, people just won't believe you. Um, also,
3: they wouldn't believe us, like, literally, right? right? Yeah. Like, and given I, media polarization.
0: Yeah, No. And, and I also think that it's like, a lot of Fox News does a lot of dissemination work here, but, um, you know, it, Arizona has been a real political entrepreneur in this space, and Arizona politicians have been talking about this kind of stuff for years and years and years, and so it isn't just media entrepreneurship. It's political entrepreneurship, and that does obligate a certain level of media coverage. There was a while where I was spending, like, every election day writing at least one, no, they weren't busing illegal immigrants to the polls story. And that was, again, like a decade ago. But it is, it's its been a very well-established um, go-to trope for, you know, delegitimizing the electoral system way
7: before the big lie.
3: Who's up next? Yeah, right here.
7: I wanted to push back a little bit on your narrative around Canada, because you know, during the Trump years, there was a lot of pushes to go to the border. There was places like Roxham Road in New York, where um, where immigrants here in the U.S. got so scared that they try to go into Canada and sometimes mm-hmm. using irregular crossings. There's been a lawsuit for a while against the Safe Third Country Agreement. That was a deal struck between the U.S. and Canada after the 9/11 attacks that prevent people from applying for asylum in one country if they've already been through the other. And we've seen as a result of that in Canada that there are there is a, a narrative that is starting a an exclusionary narrative, a narrative of, you know, we need to keep our borders safe. We don't want to see what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border happening here. I don't know if it's, if it's mainstream enough yet to cause concern. I guess my question for you is what are the markers that we should be looking for? Because I think Canada, I have also researched and written a lot about Canada, and there's such a great model, but there's clearly an undercurrent that if it doesn't get addressed... Will, could potentially devolve into what we've seen in other places starting here. So what are the markers you would be on the lookout for in Canada to sort of try to course correct?
3: It? Yeah, uh, so I'm really glad you asked that question because that is what my Canadian relatives say every time I say something like this. <laughs> right, the, the Canadian progressive line is that like you can't say good things about Canada. It's really bad and gauche, but also like importantly true. Right? You can't just say, if you're an American living down here, oh, well, aside from the weather, it's great up there. There are lots of serious problems inside the Canadian polity. And what I will say is that there's, there, there are two things that I would watch for. Um, the first was looking at the last federal election result. And part of my reason for optimism is the People's Party, which is the far right vehicle there, actually did okay nationally in terms of the percentage of their vote, but they completely blanked out in terms of parliamentary representation. Uh, they didn't get anyone, no seats whatsoever. Uh, That's because, and this is very encouraging, their support is not concentrated enough in any particular area, at least as far as we can tell right now, to be able to power an electoral victory, right? And that to me is a sign that despite a long, long, long history of very permissive immigration policy, that you're not seeing the kind of mobilization that you're seeing in the United States. On the flip side... There's a uh, a leadership competition happening inside the Conservative Party right now in Canada, and one guy who had really uh, gotten behind the trucker protests, um, if you remember those. His name is Pierre Polievre. My French pronunciation is terrible, so I apologize for that uh, to both those in the audience and everyone listening on podcast. Who is probably French? Quebec. Yeah, pretty much everybody. Um, he is somebody who clearly believes that the vision for the party should be embracing the fringes of Canadian public opinion and that leaning into a hard right confrontational narrative could very well lead the party, the conservative party, the established center-right party, into uh, electoral success, basically co-opting the People's Party support. I don't know if he's going to win the leadership contest, and I don't know if his theory would pan out in the event that he does win in another general election, but... It also is the case that the current government is a coalition government between the liberals and the NDP, which is a further left party. And that means that any protest votes in the next election with the status quo would likely go to the conservatives, which puts them in a stronger position. So you could envision a scenario in which there is, uh, like the U.S. case, a center-right party getting taken over by the anti-immigrant extreme. I don't know if we're there yet, and I don't know what Polyevra's approach to immigration would be, even if he does take over. The Conservative Party. It's just that's sort of when my warning signs start flashing when I'm looking at a country. Who's up next? Sure, right over there.
6: Hi, Tiffany Sorori. I was, I know you've on previous episodes, you've spoken about the global food crisis, and I'm wondering the extent to which the food and energy crisis could lead to increased economic hardship globally, and if so, what your um, ideas around the impacts that that has on the far right when we're, if we're in a world in which there's increased economic hardship, migration, food insecurity, and inflation?
4: Oh, man. I mean, (laughs) that's a big question, but I think the alarm bells are definitely there. And with, uh, going back a little to what Dara was saying, and that the first wave of immigrants or refugees are often the ones that are most warmly welcome we're going to be seeing ripple effects from these food and and uh, fuel shocks uh, around the world and it's going to it's potentially going to be very destabilizing we've seen that in the past before absolutely food and fuel shortages are often the sparks for larger political problems and we are we are entering into a time where not only we had these inflationary pressures because of the pandemic and now we're having these um, you know because of the conflict and sanctions on Russia and just the inability to you know export things like wheat from Ukraine or sunflower oil or fertilizer from Russia and so I don't know if those shocks have fully realized themselves yet but you know you've seen um, real warnings of famine in East Africa um, you know Afghanistan, of course, we've seen that. Um, And they're not necessarily getting wheat from Ukraine. But when the price of food goes up, everybody and it's often it's always the most vulnerable and the poorest people who are affected. And so, you know, we talk a lot about the price of gas here, but these poorer countries are going to be ill-equipped to deal with the fallout from that. And I do think there's a recognition from that in the, the administration and in Washington. It, the recent 40 billion aid package that was passed, there's about 5 billion that goes to global food aid. But the question is, is that going to be enough? And are we really prepared for, for what comes next? I, I don't really know, but I don't know what that's going to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would add that we do not have a legal language to talk about forced migration that is not rooted in government persecution. Like, even the idea that there can be non-state persecutors like criminal organizations is like a little bit contested. But there you at least have like a script. The whole problem with climate migration, for me, of which this migration as a response to famine is a subset, is that it's forced migration but it's economic migration and there's just been this strong dichotomy between voluntary economic better life migration and forced refugee you poor person migration and if we don't have a way of talking about someone being compelled to leave their home to survive economically, which like arguably actually is what we already have in the in the current wave of Central American migration, like there are plenty of stories of, I just couldn't, no one in my village can eat, which aren't about food per se, but to have ties to like the failures of the coffee crop, et cetera. We don't have a policy solution there because we don't even have a way of understanding it as a thing that, a developed country might have an obligation for the refugee obligation is there although not always in practice there is no obligation for compelled migration that is not refugees
3: What's up next maybe someone on one of the sides I can't really see due to these lights
0: I was actually hoping that you were going to take this opportunity and talk about the eco fascists act
3: oh I, I wasn't going to do that oh okay. they're there they're there they're minimal they're not they're not a really big deal
0: fair I'm actually going to press you on that a little bit because like, yes, I understand that it's not like there are a whole lot of people who are wetting, you know, far left environmental views to far right immigration views. But it it does also seem to be that this ability to turn immigration into a master issue is going to result in scripts getting used... That are more explicitly climate focused in the future as there become more obvious problems that are or can be tied to climate change right that like that's an available script that we haven't seen the far right use much of because far right politics for other reasons have not been have not been terribly climate hawkish but that. In theory, I could see an Orban or another sort of political entrepreneur saying this is yet another reason why we have to be extremely militant against the civilizational threat because it, it, like the planet will wipe us out if we are too generous.
3: Yeah, um, and I appreciate corrections for flippancy as usual. Um, what? What I guess I would say is that the, the point that you made embedded in there is like there's a reason why these parties haven't seized on that narrative and it's their overall position on climate is like really important. Okay, right? the, the, the the far right in Europe, at least, is, is as far as I can tell, internally divided on climate issues. Right. Some of them are taking more of a line that like maybe we should take this seriously, but also still keep the immigrants out. And some of them are. Uh, we need to increase domestic energy production. Climate change is not that big a deal; it's not our problem. That that kind of thing, right? And I think maybe more fundamentally, it's like not a winning issue for them. It's a winning issue for the left wing parties, and that you know in Europe the, the public opinion is much more favorable towards. accepting the reality of climate change, the need to do something about it than it is in the United States. And left-wing parties and green parties have really tried to ride that um, as one of their issues and have succeeded with certain demographics in doing so, not with others, but with some. And so the far right just doesn't see, as far as I can tell, a lot of grounds to, to win there. Now, in a world where forced migration because of climate change is much more salient, it's very possible that could get integrated much more into the narratives, but I don't know how far away we are from that world. I mean, and I mean that literally, right? Like, I just do not know how far we are from a world in which it is generally understood by most people that there are mass population flows being caused by the aftershocks of climate change. And when we get to that, that future world, be it in 25 years or 50, it could very well be the political contours of all of this are very different.
4: I think it's also hard to distinguish right because it's all compounding right if you have a drought in a place and then you have a conflict and then you have global price shocks what is the actual cause of migration it's hard unlike in the persecution instance to sort of have this direct line and that's what makes it so complicated Is we don't really have a language for the kinds of migration flows that we're seeing because there's so many factors that are contributing to them in this the current world that we live in right
0: and in a world where most migration is from and to the global south and most of it is to adjoining countries that may not themselves be you know in the most stable place ecologically having a large population shock like you can see a world in which it is both a response to and a generator of continued disorder and instability Questions,
4: folks? There we go. Sure, yeah. Hi, I'm Jessica Salhan from the Truman Center. Um, I'm really interested in the language we, I say we, I suppose I'm referring to the media, use when talking about immigrants and migration. Um, There's a lot of, and I'm I'm not talking about a specific outlet, but hordes of migrants, swarms of migrants, all of this dehumanizing language, how... You know that inevitably, I think, makes it difficult for an audience to resonate uh, that we're talking about individual human lives here. So, I'd just be interested to hear from three journalists: how does the how do the terms play into this when you're when you're covering these stories, and and how important is that?
0: I'm going to try not to eat up the rest of our time here. Um, I think that language like hordes and swarms. In a political context where one side is advancing an invasion narrative is playing to that side that said i think that language that like there's so so much more emphasis on the terms used in immigration coverage than there is in any other issue in immigration media criticism and it gets a little bit magic wordy and it gets a little bit kind of sometimes you do have to talk about collective populations of people. Sometimes you do have to talk about systems getting overwhelmed. It is hard not to use words like migration flow in that context. And so, you know, I personally see a bright line between stuff that like plays into an invasion and stuff that just collective words that just don't differentiate between people because sometimes you have to be talking about a systemic impact.
3: Yeah, I I think word choice is always... Really important. and when you use words that are tantamount to slurs, like slur maybe not exactly, but certainly words that that reconstruct this threat narrative, it's very dangerous. but I also don't think that's as much done in mainstream media as it is done deliberately in you know Breitbart, Fox, UK tabloids, like that that's sort of the the, the home of this horde invasion type language. Uh, what I do think that the mainstream media does need to be more thoughtful about, and I think I'll, I'll disagree with there a little bit about this, as she suggested not that's not the case earlier, is the use of of large numbers of people imagery, right, is yes, it is very striking, but it also is the case that if done poorly, it really can capture a sense of overwhelming and impending crushing of our country and our borders and creating a massive collective danger uh, in a way that that few other things can. And in the converse, very humanizing images of people we all know these photos we've all seen them, right? Be it uh, you know in the Mediterranean or on the American border, right? Of individuals suffering yeah, and I mean, the pain to be that clear, they experience. And
0: just just to just to name it, you're talking about. The most eating photos being images of corpses, which is, I think, a really like you're not wrong, but that's deeply weird and like says something. Yeah, like it's it's me reaping. This sucks. What the
4: heck, you know? Yeah, I think it's a really important thing, and I think as a journalist, I have to. Think and struggle with these issues all the time. Even using words like crisis, which feel neutral, aren't really because you know. Again, these are people, and and people are often fleeing from crises that are they have that is not of their own making. You know, and so it's it's really really difficult. And I think the thing that I think about when I'm trying to do this is to just remind myself that these are like human beings and any way that you can possibly, you know, use language to humanize them, to humanize the experience um, is the way the best solution. But I don't know if it is a full solution. It's just something. I think it is something that uh, the media and journalists do struggle with um, when they're trying to get information across. And yeah, it's tough. I don't have a great answer, I don't think.
0: (laughs) And on that typically uh, solutions-based note, um, we are going to end this week's episode of The Weeds our producer and engineer on The Weeds is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is our Deputy Editorial Director for Talk Podcasts. Special thanks for this one to Afim the Dream Shapiro, who has done our on-site engineering and who has been here for hours making sure we sound good.
3: Yeah, allegedly he got here at 7.30, yeah. which is incredible. Um, and, uh, he probably spent more time preparing for this than we than did. did. So real, <laughs> real props to Afim.
0: Um, and also shout out to Sarah Bishop-Woods and The Truman Project for help organizing. The Weeds is a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Thanks a lot. Thank
4: you very much.